0: So we've built over time now it's a thousand person mentor platform. We've got five hundred founders we've we've invested in. and it's created a, a huge community and network, which really helps no matter what industry you're in. how do we help these founders be able to
1: learn faster, fail faster, and succeed faster. Is it time to pivot? Our guest today, Jonathan Axelrod, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Venture Capital Funded Tech Accelerator ERA or Entrepreneurs Roundtable Accelerator is just the guy to tell us. So on this episode, he shares incredible stories of startups that have used customer experience and agility to pivot and grow. I know you're gonna enjoy it. So, Jonathan, we're so excited to have you here on the show. And the first question, the most important question, and you're usually not even uh, told this ahead of time, is what's your favorite coffee and why? So, good question. At the moment, I've been into iced beverages, and I would say
0: uh, an iced Americano is what I've been currently drinking the most. Uh, I drink them black, no sugar, no milk, just uh, straight up. Um, Biggest pet peeve. And again, I don't want to sound like a diva here, but you have to have the right amount of ice. If there's too much ice, they get watery, not enough, they're not cold enough, they don't really last. So I would say at the moment, I I go with a nice
1: iced Americano. And if we're in person, I'm sure we could have one together, Adam. Oh man, that's good. Well, I am uh, I'm I'm right there in line with that. In San Francisco, like I go a little bit lighter on the ice because it's cold right now. In New York, I I so it depends on where you are as well. You got to factor that in too. It's 91
0: <laughs> degrees here right now. So I'm I'm up on the ice today.
1: How about that? <laughs> that's good. We're at a 70% ice level. That's man, that's awesome. Well, thank you for that. So, I mean, just without further ado, like the, the first thing just to dive into is just your experience. If you could zoom in to your experience first as an operator, I know you've had a lot of success. Success there and then talk about your experience running era so um and just kind of what what it took to get there kind of if you could go in maybe a timeline on both i think it'd be fun and then we'll double tap in a couple areas and then from there we'll be talking about just the cx lens of of the future and things you're seeing absolutely so um i i started my first company
0: back in 99 which is probably before some of the folks listening to this were even around. uh, It was called The Bubble. And uh, I left my cushy job as a management consultant at a place called McKinsey and Company to uh, launch my first company. And it was an e-commerce company called Music123. And we were an early mover selling uh, musical instruments online, and these were, you know, everything from guitars to tubas. You know, Fender, Gibson, Yamaha. Um, we started out direct to consumer. We also sold to schools, to churches, uh, and this was back in the day when you had to invent everything. So now you have to invent the customer experience that you were looking at for your end users. You know, your customers buying the guitars. You had to do it for your vendors who were trying to figure out how to send you inventory. You had to do it for your, for everyone in the whole supply chain. And so we built everything from everything from a customer service stack to a website to our fulfillment center. And that company um, went through all sorts of twists and turns with the bubble. We actually were fortunate enough to never have raised enough money to have our burn high enough to uh, really, you know, hit the wall when the bubble popped, and so we were able to cut our marketing spend aggressively, uh, only invest in instead of paying hundred dollars CPMS on the front page of Yahoo, investing in things that were like pay per click advertising, which were considered to be, you know, a little bit uh, unusual back then and uh we were able to cut our marketing spend by 80 percent over three months uh but only saw sales fall about 15 percent. and then we were able to start reinvesting what worked a lot of our competitors went went under went bankrupt because they had big burns and we made it and we ended up growing and we were uh, number two in the space uh when we sold And a profitable company growing now sold and uh, the company still exists it's now a part of guitar center and you can go uh still buy a musical instrument at music one two three if you want to so um that was, uh, you know, that was the story that the Quick, 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 Quick uh, Entrepreneur 1.0, and that was, uh, you know, first generation e-commerce, and uh, this was back when you actually had to have your own warehouses and everything else, Adam, so it was, uh, it was quite, quite, quite an experience, so.
1: I, uh, yeah, can I, can I double tap on yeah, some of that? please go for it because I, I I love it and I can't I mean just building back then like the advice back then has got to be different than now just because of like you said you're you're having to like build from complete scratch in every part of your business. Um, but tell me what it was like when really stuff hit the fan it sounded like around that season and just like, Yeah, I remember scrappy.
0: actually being at a trade show. One of the times the NASDAQ really collapsed in Germany, believe it or not, it was the world musical instrument show at the Music Meza in Frankfurt. And all the Americans were crowded around, I think they were Bloomberg's, whatever the machines were watching like the stock market just dive and trying to figure out what was going on. And, you know, it was interesting. We went from being told we are worth, I don't know, a hundred X multiple revenue to people just not caring at all and about you know, anything that was internet. Um, You know, some of the big biggest differences was we realized we had to go from having internet math which was just get revenue and worry about it later to actually being a self-sustaining profitable company and that whole shift of mindset was just radical um as then we were fortunate enough that we were never had a big enough burn that it was impossible or else we would have gone under but just changing that mindset with the bubble of all of a sudden one day only growth mattered the next day you had to stay on your own two feet and you know I, I think that's always covered, colored my view of uh, you know, bubbles, booms, busts. Since then, because things can change, and when the market changed, it changed radically. I mean, the other example I'll tell you then was we had a bank line because we had uh, loans for musical instruments and inventory, so the kind of thing a normal you know company would have, not a software company, but a commerce company. And the bank decided they want to lend us money anymore, not because we weren't profitable, just because they didn't want to get out of startups. And we were like, but wait, we're making our payments, and we're a profitable company, and. They just said we don't want to be in the startup business anymore we're closing our whole line of business so we had to go find a new lender so these were the kind of things you saw where it wasn't that they didn't want to lend us as much money it was they were closing their whole their whole shop down in that area so um yeah it was it was changing overnight what metrics people cared about and you know we really did have to change the way we did business we were fortunate to be able to do it and make it as a profitable winner there
1: i love how you just went and focused on the basics of the business and and just got dirty, you got your hands dirty, and had to cut areas where you had to cut, and that's never fun to talk about because we we're, we're in a more boom right now. But I know that that's always it's just part of the market. So yeah. that's 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 just it's just part of it. How did you prioritize the customer during that time period? Like say like just right around that time of the two thousand one period? How did you really just focus on your customer experience? It's
0: just, so we're incredibly focused on what customers cared about, and what's interesting was it wasn't always conventional wisdom there what customers told us they cared about was, and it's hard to imagine back then, but it was hard to get supply in a lot of the country. You just couldn't get Fender guitars, for example, let alone at a good price or with anyone who knew what they were talking about. So our customers kept telling us, hey, we want to have really broad inventory. We want to have knowledgeable folks we can access. We, and we actually had, were some of the early users of digital customer chat to go beyond telephone so people could go to our website and be able to chat with our, our, our knowledgeable staff. And they want to reasonable prices. And what they didn't want which went against conventional wisdom was very fancy videos why because bandwidth was slow so you had a lot of companies investing a lot of money and coming up with these very fancy video studios which were great but nobody could watch them and we kept hearing don't slow down my experience and so what we wanted to make sure was our site had to be as fast as possible all the time and then they'd get them what they want which is they like images they wanted good images, good selection, good prices. They want to be able to access expert information. What they didn't care about was buying on the mobile phones of 2001 or video. And I say that because these were both areas some of our competitors were investing in. And we would shake our heads because they were very expensive at the time. And nobody, could, nobody cared about them. So I mean, that's the biggest thing that comes to mind about understanding what they cared about.
1: That's that's really good. And so I want to fast forward now. And and I think your story represents a lot of entrepreneurs who are listening that are currently operating a business, prioritizing the customer, they're going to have that exit, they're going to have some success, Um, whether it's as big as they want or not is is different, but they're going to eventually go and become investors, whether that's angel investors or starting their own fund. And so you have that story at the end of this, when did you start ERA? How long after yeah, so this very
0: quickly I actually had a whole nother startup. I started and exited there. I don't want to take too much time, but a company was to company called Music Gremlin. And we were a software company and then a hardware company and content company. And we were the opposite of a commerce company that we were inventing stuff. And we invented a way to get music and video from well, then you would call it server side. Now you call it the cloud directly to portable devices. So, back in 2005, let's say 2006, you would have dragged music to your PC and then drag it over to your Rio or your iRiver, forgetting even your iPod. And we invented wireless technology to let you go right to the device. And uh, we then built this great software. And it turned out there was no one in market who could use it yet. So, we had to then, so this is one of those classic, uh, we were leading the market. We knew where it had to go, but we built software for electronics companies back then and nobody was ready for it and so we then had to build the world's first wi-fi mp3 player uh, called the gremlin it was um 1000 mg 1000 and uh, my venture capitalist said we're doing what and we said no we're building hardware because we have to and so we did that we actually had to invent you know the whole experience user interface like how do you find music on a portable device without a computer and no one had done it back then so we had to create a whole new way to be able to browse out albums, browse songs and select them and really instruct folks of even how Wi-Fi could work. So uh, we built the device, sold our couple thousand. Luckily then the uh the market caught up with both cell phones that were dual radio and other electronics companies and were able to get out of the hardware business, get back to the software business. And you know, that company was ultimately acquired by SanDisk. So um, that was one where we were you know, way ahead of the market in terms of what was happening. And we were you know, fortunate enough to be able to build our own hardware, have the resources to, to bridge until those devices were ready. And so that was all about a vision of customers told us loudly, They wanted to be able to get music and video or eventually video right on their portable devices. The infrastructure didn't exist. How do you create an offering which leads the market, but also is one that's accessible? So that was a customer experience challenge of a very different sense. And I think we also built the first cloud based music service that you could access without any sort of client just to be able to support what we were doing. So anyway, that that was the second go around, very different company and, and, and the second exit.
1: Well, that's amazing, and uh, yeah, thanks for just pausing on that. So, I mean, what I hear there is just some incredible pivots. Can you zoom us into that moment when you had to go tell your board that we're switching from software to hardware? Because I think a lot of entrepreneurs can appreciate that. And and yeah. maybe one piece I'd love to hear is how like did you how much customer evidence did you cite in that pivot? Like. So-
0: So when we started the the company, it was a lot of vision without a lot of data. Customers would say they wanted to do it, but they couldn't even imagine it. So when we started out and there was a real question, could you even get music for getting video onto devices directly? I'll spare people the detail things like DRM and license acquisition and you know, uh, asynchronous connectivity, all these very difficult issues. We solved a lot of them and actually some very early patents dated back 2003 in the area that are ended up being kind of fundamental to a lot of things. But when we went to build the hardware device, we went to our board and we said, you know, we had a major electronics company who had agreed to build one and then they announced they were delayed a year. And we basically said, number one, we had a customer. They were interested, they're delayed a year. We, we can't wait until so we have some evidence from a very big electronics company that they wanted this. Uh, our biggest evidence is you know, if you ask users, they all say they want to be more mobile, and they all say their biggest dissatisfaction with the current music services, they're just too hard to use. We can solve that. But in terms of building the MP3 player ourselves, you know, we weren't really, you know, we had to staff up and build a whole team to do it. We hadn't been funded to be a hardware company. And so I think eventually our boards decided we believe in the experience we don't really want to be in the hardware business but we don't really have a choice you know otherwise we're just gonna get blocked from being to market and one of the lessons to us was you know when, when you're and i think of this today when looking at startups you know how much do you want to control your own destiny and that's one of the hard things if you're selling to other big companies versus consumers how much of it can someone else block you and in this particular case unless we were willing to go to market with our own device we would have you know been blocked by these other companies not realizing how important it was the other thing that helped us then was Amazon was just becoming more open to sellers. And so instead of having to go to all these retailers and, and put it on the shelves, we basically partnered with Amazon as one of the early devices and they they sold it directly for us. And for somebody who was only looking to sell a finite number of them, it made it possible for us to sell direct to consumer in a way that, that got us there. So I think we were taking advantage of some of the evolving platforms and and uh, what they were doing. So th- that's my uh, quick answer
1: that's that's good i love the scrappy nature of it and honestly it sounds like a lot of it was like we have no other option
0: yeah. <laughs> i mean no choice it was either not go to market or build our own and
1: that was you know
0: that that's that that becomes compelling logic at a board meeting when it was we either can wait a year and be uncertain if they move or you know what we can uh we can build our own device <laughs>
1: that's i love it just thinking outside the box not being afraid to be scrappy that's good so after that, was that when you started ERA?
0: Yeah. So it was after, after, um. so we sold Sandisk in 08 before the financial, sold to Sandisk in 08 before the financial crisis and then left, you know, during the financial crisis. And it's an important time because that's when became an active angel investor. And at that point, there was a dearth of capital kind of going into startups in the, in the wake of the financial crisis. And particularly here in New York, we saw a couple of really interesting uh, events happening. Number one, it was cheaper to start a company than it had ever been. Companies could, you know, get to market with, you know, instead of three million dollars to write your first line of code, it was probably then three thousand dollars. Now it's probably thirty dollars, right? Um, and you found these founders able to get products to market, but a lot of the legacy VCs had gone up market. They're looking to write bigger checks, they're looking for more proof of. Uh, especially in the East Coast, more proof of, of execution. And so this group of this, this generation of angels had emerged. And you know, what people kept telling us is angels are great, think of us capital, but what we really need his help. And so we started ERA and we'd seen what Paul Graham had built and really respected what, what, what they had done in, for, first in Boston, even before they moved out there, and thought that if we could build in, an institution which would provide companies. A little bit of capital and a lot of help and how do you put those things together and that was really the impetus in an area where you were seeing the lean startups start you were seeing capital efficient companies come to, to bear and you were seeing in new york which is our home base we thought a tremendous opportunity a multi-decade opportunity to become a venture center where all these industries that were in new york were being transformed or disrupted by technology and why wouldn't you want to be close to your customers and these were first startups from all over the world but if you were in one of these industries in new york why wouldn't you want to be here and so that was really the 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 events we saw happening that made us believe there was a huge need and an opportunity to create a platform like that here. And New York's always been a city of verticals, whether you were in finance, fashion, or healthcare, you were in those industries. It wasn't one where you had the same communities you often found on the West Coast. Where you know fintech and fashion tech in San Francisco were often the same industry, whereas New York they were different, and so we've built over time now it's a 1000 person mentor platform. We've got 500 founders we've we've invested in and it's created a a huge community and network, which really helps no matter what industry you're in, how do we help these founders be able to learn faster fail faster and succeed faster so that's the quick story of how we got going
1: that's really cool and i mean it's become an incredible operation i've just seen so many cool companies so i'm i'm excited to kind of double tap in, in that perspective even more but just like um if if you want to talk about one of your biggest challenges as a venture investor i would love to kind of hear that cuz i wanna like wear the hat of an investor like i said i i had briefly worked as 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 an associate at a firm here in the valley just and and as a former entrepreneur my perspective just completely changed. But if you could just share, like authentically, like some uh, the one of the bigger challenges as you were maybe getting started with ERA or or in the middle of uh, building it out or, or currently that can help us just live in your shoes for a second as entrepreneurs. Sure. Well, I mean,
0: I, I think one of the first things you say we had from transitioning, you know, to the other side of the table, if you will, was keeping in mind I wasn't running the companies anymore. We were actually backing other founders and helping them grow. And I think that's a a mindset, a mind a mind shift that you have to have if you're going to actually become a venture investor. But I think you know, the hardest thing at the early stage is you're trying to project forward a lot. Like there's a ton of unknowns. There's a ton of reasons companies can fail. And it's really trying to understand how to identify those founding teams, which you think are going to be able to see it through. And it ends up, and we'll talk about some examples, it's even less if that original idea makes sense. Some of our best companies have wildly changed what they're doing. But how do you find those founders who have vision, who have grit, and who really just have the almost uh, irrational desire to see this thing come to fruition and what this thing is may change. And so I think that's really the hardest thing at the early stages. How do you identify those founders? And you see you here about things like you know founder market fit, and that's great. You want to find founders in the right space, but that's still not enough. It's, it's how do you find founders who really have that Um, ability to uh, combine both the stubbornness to see something through and the flexibility to understand when something's wrong and make changes. And that's a really hard combination, Adam.
1: (laughs) No doubt. Because I mean, we can both think of examples where it's like they just were a dog and a bone on a concept when they needed to pivot. Yeah, and then you can think of that same approach of like I'm I'm stubborn I'm sticking on this and then eventually it worked and so you're like wait a second like the same advice seems to contradict is there any more that you could give us in terms of like what you found uh, around evaluating a founding team or, or is it just still very subjective Yeah, I, I mean year?
0: it's it's a good question. I mean I think in terms of evaluating you're trying to find ways about both kind of vision and grit and I think part of that comes down to you know understanding. How are they approach problem solving? Like, what are the milestones they set up for themselves? We're very KPI driven, and we find that's useful in terms of understand are people setting measurable goals and adjusting accordingly, and how have they done that to date? So even a little bit of evidence of evidence of execution can go a long way. But but what I thought you were going to actually go is a different direction, which is some of the companies that have had to pivot. And you know we have some great examples, and I'll, I'll 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 mention one if it's okay. Here are a couple of them, and you know a company of ours that actually went public last month, so it's obviously successful story you know it's you know a billion dollar plus market cap the company is now called catapult and what they now do is they do least own financing for uh folks without great credit scores and so they partner with people like wayfair for example where if you want to be able to least own a, a couch or something like that particularly if your credit's not great they can do that and they have some amazing technology that's a great end to this story where they started out was a company called uh, called cognical uh eight plus eight years ago now and you know, Brandon and Chinda, we met them, were building software that was supposed to allow lenders to work better. And that made sense to us. They seemed to have vision there. They wanted lenders to be able to, for people without great credit, be able to make better decisions and make credit more available. Turned out there was a big problem. The lenders didn't know what to do with this. The lenders in this category were pretty, I don't wanna say backwards, that's gonna sound wrong, but they were pretty set in their ways and you know giving them a better way to do business didn't really help if they didn't have the vision to to transform it. So they had to make the big shift to say, you know what, we're not going to be a software company. We're actually going to be a lender. We're going to go about and so we're the ones who are actually going to go and, you know, the dog, eat our own dog food, if you will, and go from being a software company to say we're going to be the ones who are actually going to provide this financing and partner with retailers or retailers and allow customers directly to be able to have this experience. Because we know what the customers want. These lenders are never going to get there if we wait for them. They just don't see the future. So we're going to have to take the jump, and you know what? Along with raising venture money, we're going to have to start raising money to lend out. So again, I use it as an example. I mean, that was a completely different company than we wanted to invest in originally, or thought about investing in. But it was the same vision. It was the same founders, and you know, fast forward and through all sorts of twists and turns, you know, it's now a public company. So you know, those mm. those are those are the kind of journeys we see we see founders do all the time. I'll give you another example. Uh, a company called Triplelift, and it was recently sold to uh, Vista for a billion four last uh, in June or May, I guess it was. It closed. Company that we invested in originally with, um, they came from the ad the uh, the industry. They came from the ad tech industry. Eric Barry is you know, CEO, and they had some interesting ideas of what they wanted to do in the classified space. Believe it or not, they wanted to reinvent Craigslist, and we liked the team. We liked what they were doing. We thought reinventing Craigslist maybe didn't make a lot of sense, but you know we liked their background and, and thought that they could do something interesting. And you know, sure enough, they ended up pivoting into Lift. and even then they went back to the ad tech space and they started out with something that was more like uh, buddy media for Pinterest back then if you want to put two things together, which was interesting, but it turned out was limited and really wasn't what people wanted. They raised their first round with that, but even then went back to the drawing board and really moved into native advertising in a deep way. And they've become you know the real leaders right now in you know real-time native advertising, everything from images to videos across multiple platforms and really a tremendous company. But they were founders there. We first invested in. In a different area altogether. Although they had a deep spike in ad tech, and even when they went to ad tech, it took a while to find the right the right answer. So again, j- just in terms of founders out there who are listening, you know, you're not going to get it right the first time in a lot of cases. These are both billion dollar companies, and they both had it very wrong. The good news was they had the vision and they had the tenacity to get it right. So I don't know if that's where you're going,
1: Adam, but I thought oh, that's examples. That's incredible, and, and they also had the humility to pivot when they need it. Absolutely. I I know that that can be really hard from my personal I'll give you one more if we've got time, because I feel like entrepreneurs love these.
0: The company of ours called Scentbird that we invested in, uh, they go by the Netflix of perfume. I'll take a consumer example (laughs) just to be different. And what they've now done, and they're doing phenomenally well, they're a place where people can, instead of buying just big bottles of, let's say, you know, a couple hundred dollar you know, fragrances, you can actually fill up a queue and get samples. So you get a your own dispenser every month, you can get a different fragrance, queue it up as you want to, and every month get something new and different. And it's been a great way for consumers to, to experience uh, new fragrances and then go on and, and if they want to, you know, buy, buy full fragrances as well. When they first started they had the insight around sampling but what they did was they would send you i think it was three i don't remember it was three or four different samples a month and then you would send back what you didn't want and they would charge you for what you had okay that makes sense there was a problem customers would keep it cancel their credit cards and never pay them back and they basically ended up having i think it was a negative margin this is a while ago so if i apologize on but it was it was close to a negative margin because customers were keeping it and canceling. So they're like the insight works we got to reinvent it and they ended up reinventing a model where instead you would basically fill up your queue in advance and then they would send you uh their own now it's their own modeled um little dispenser every month what you wanted and so that's an example where their insight was right but their first go-to-market was going to bankrupt the company and yet they realized here's what they like about it how do we find a new model and so we see these examples all the time and that's one where they were they were right about their first customer insight. It just turned out the way they were going to market wasn't going to work. So it goes back to that tenacity and flexibility coming together. And
1: how do you create a great customer experience uh, around all that? Oh, that's that's incredible. Well, I mean, like as a perfect segue, um, let's double tap into that. And there's two points that I wanted to kind of talk about. One is this thing that we're seeing around customer experience-led growth in, in a world where we, we've seen just the ca- cost of, acquisition has gone up 79% since 2016, um, in, in addition to a lot of other forces of just not having as many channels. So the acquisition side is just way harder than it ever has been. So therefore, it's now way, it's even more economically feasible to focus on the customer and that expansion. And not only that, but having them be the referrals in the best possible way. So we're, we, we've we done some cool research on that as well. Have you seen any interesting trends from companies that you've invested in on, on using that customer experience? experience led growth uh, to actually not just help their customer be happy, but also just transfer into to more growth.
0: And you're talking consumer companies now mostly. Is that so
1: I'm seeing we're seeing consumers, we're seeing B2B as well, because in, in the same way that same way as Amazon's been able to do that. Like I'm I'm using Amazon, I can buy the same product at another thing, but I know that the full-end experience is better. So I'm more likely to push that experience to friends and family, of course, because that experience has been nailed from the customer experience level.
0: Yeah, I mean we so the answer is we see that across the boarding companies. Let me give you two examples. We've got one company that's actually its business is actually empowering other people to have better experiences. So let me talk about Glia for a second, because it's 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 powering what you're talking about in a variety of different companies. They were in auto originally financial service where they focus, but but they, they apply beyond that as well. And you know, it's really digital customer service. And you know what they like to say is, How can I help you? And was, a lot of ways is the worst question that you can ever be asked. Because if you're a customer going to one of these, you know, if whether you want, you don't want to say, How can I help you? You want to be helped. You want them to know they've got all this context. And so they unify the customer, whether it be browsing or co browsing or video chat or chat or phones, it doesn't matter where you're coming from, but how do you create a unified digital customer? customer service experience that is you know, context intelligent. So the idea of how can I help you become something of the past, because they know what you're doing, they know where you are, they know how they can help you. And so they're providing this to a variety of their, their businesses booming right now, a variety of different customers who are finding that you know, their end customers are demanding this of them. So it's at financial services, they're by far their, their, their biggest segment. Their customers are saying, our customers want this better experience. How do we provide it? And they're saying one easy way is no matter how people are contacting you, mobile, PC, phone browsing, you want to give them a context-aware, unified experience. And again, that's an example of a company that's powering it for a whole lot of companies and doing it in a really interesting way. I'll give you another example there. And again, I realize I'm talking about the pipe companies, but I think they're interesting because they power hundreds of companies. Another company of ours uh, called Hiro, which is an intelligent voice company, a voice AI company. And it lets you actually go and talk to websites. And um, they had a lot of growth during the pandemic working with healthcare companies where people would go to these websites and just say I need to find a doctor or I have these symptoms how do I triage it and these hospitals were overwhelmed they didn't have a lot of ways to be able to interact so these they, they needed help and what our folks could do whether through a chatbot or through actual voice is be able to triage those requests and again that goes back to customer experience a customer maybe didn't want to go navigate through a website they wanted just to be able to say when i got to the website you know how can i hear my symptoms how can i find a physician and again we're seeing more and more you know end users demand those kind of experiences and you know voice ai is hard to do well and you've seen them do it and great and They're in everything from real estate to healthcare now. So again, those are two different companies, very different, but both of them trying to provide a one case unified customer experience. In their case, voice AI to be able
1: to let customers get what they want faster and and more effectively. And we think it's just the beginning of that whole trend. That's yeah. That I mean, mean, that we're seeing that same thing. So we looked at uh, we looked at four thousand six hundred. Companies that were that we we had data on them since they were early on, like in year one or two of founding, they started using Zendesk, and we wanted to see the faster growing companies versus the slower growing companies. What do they do different in terms of customer experience? And uh, the faster growing companies were thirty three percent more likely to add omni channel which is what you, that first yeah, company you're exactly. saying doing within the first two years, than the slower going companies, because it's like, you got to meet your customer where they are. We don't have time for just, Hey, just send, send it to the standard email. It's like, no, I want to, I'm on Instagram right now. I want to talk to you there, or I'm on LinkedIn, or I, I want to talk to you on WhatsApp or whatever it is, which is kind of funny because you're like, gosh, these customers, but <laughs> I, I'm the same way as a customer. So I do the same thing. Um, I'm, uh, glad, uh, yeah, I'm glad I'm glad to hear that. That makes a ton of sense. You know, give you know, on the other side in terms
0: of the companies with better customer experiences. You know, we've got one company called Naya that's uh, in the benefit space, and what they do is they make it easier for uh, employees to understand what their benefits are. So they work with employers, they work with insurance companies. So if you log on, you can understand. What the very easily, what the best health plan is for you to select, and then also how to best take advantage of your benefits. And that's something where that customer experience, if you, if you whole employees has generally been terrible people don't understand what their options are they don't know how to use them and it's frustrated people and these folks use a data-driven approach but to make it really easy to for employees to be able to understand this and again it's an area that's so important to people it's such a big amount of spend and yet it's so opaque and we're seeing great pickup from then from uh insurers partnering with them and in brokers partnering with them and you know employers wanting to deploy this as a way to make it easier for employees to make better decisions which makes employees happier and actually saves employers money as well so um that's an example of we think you know customer experience being brought to an area of health benefits where it's taken uh it, it hasn't how do i put this it, it hasn't exactly been a shining uh a shiny example of the easy easy customer experience and so we're, we're glad to see them doing it so again that's just another example
1: for you adam Oh, Jonathan, this has been amazing. Thank you for just like telling us about your personal experience and then bringing in these like six different examples. Uh, just really helpful. And I'm sure a lot of our founders are going to love that. If if I'm a founder and I'll maybe uh, pre-seed or seed, um, tell me like what kind of companies you look for just so i can inc- so we so the right person will be Absolutely. Out to you.
0: we look for good companies out no just, just <laughs> kidding No, uh, we we're, we're looking for uh, you know most of our companies are software software enabled companies we do both b2b and b2c we number one are looking for you know really really ambitious founders with really big dreams to change things who have vision and we care about that most of all number one number two we are looking for big markets just because it's easier to get a lot wrong and still be right Um, We're looking for capital efficient business models, you know, the way we invest, we're looking for folks who, you know, can be really KPI focused and can understand and prove out something about the business, a lot of capital. Yes, it's going to take money to scale, but we want folks who have models and you can prove it out early. And so, you know, if you're in anywhere from, and in terms of industries, we are agnostic, we generally look for companies that can make sense in one of the industries in New York, we know well. Uh, whether this is anywhere from financial services to healthcare to all parts of commerce, you know, vertical SaaS, a lot of areas. It's again, it's it's broad industry wise, but the commonality is, you know, great founders, big area, you know, capital efficient business models. And fundamentally, are you transforming something that matters? And do you want to, and if you are, we're all, no matter how early you are, we're always interested in talking to you.
1: Jonathan, this has been amazing.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you, Adam. Really appreciate. It. Great to be here. And um, you know, for founders out there, if you want to come talk to us, we're 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 uh, we're always happy to meet exciting folks doing uh, doing new things. Awesome. Wait, what? Real quick, what's the best way to reach out? Is oh, it, sorry. So, you want to... uh, I'll tell you two ways. So our website is uh, eranyc.com. Uh, if you're an early stage startup, it tells you how to even apply to our accelerator. Uh, and uh, folks who want to email me directly. You know what? I'll even give my email, John at eranyc. You can reach me there too.
1: Boom, thank you so much. Thank you.